Okay, I want to go on to Bill's case. We want to get into the issue of management of HER2-positive disease in the metastatic setting. Okay, this is a 44-year-old Hispanic female who was diagnosed with breast cancer at age 39. She had locally advanced breast cancer with palpable supracavicular and axillary adenopathy in a 4 to 5 centimeter fixed breast mass. Her biopsy of the breast showed a grade 3 infiltrating ductal carcinoma. It was ER positive 90%, PR positive, HER2 new 3+. Because of her advanced disease, she was not eligible for the adjuvant Herceptin trial and she was treated with the FEC100 regimen and then surgery and then taxotere. She had a mastectomy after the anthracycline-based chemotherapy with a residual 0.3 centimeter infiltrating ductal carcinoma, one positive node, and at that time she was tested again and was heard to new positive by FISH. She finished her taxotere in April 2002 and then was placed on adjuvant tamoxifen and received post-mastectomy radiation. In September of 2003, after a year or so, actually two years after diagnosis, she had an abnormal liver function test, also in this case a rising CA2729, and a liver biopsy showed recurrent breast cancer. She was initially treated on a clinical trial with Gemzar Taxotere, for her the first time Herceptin, and she was treated from October 2003 for 10 cycles with essentially a complete remission. She was just kept on maintenance Herceptin starting in May 2004 when she completed chemotherapy. She was progression-free for over a year until August 2005 when she developed liver metastases and then was treated with Taxol Carboplatinum Herceptin on the weekly type regimen. This had excellent disease control with, again, near-complete remission, and she was placed back on maintenance Herceptin in early 2006. In June 2006, just a few months more than a year ago, she progressed, this time with a single liver lesion, no other evidence of metastatic disease, and she was very interested in local therapy, which she had been for a while, and was also seeing the radiation therapist, so not endorsed by me, but she was actually treated with stereotactic radiation, which it was not easy to tell exactly what the response to that was. And then in October 2006, she developed later progression in the liver and was placed on another clinical trial, which I've actually not seen the results published yet, lapatinib plus or minus Herceptin, and she was randomized to lapatinib Herceptin arm. She actually had some improvement, but not a complete remission. How did she do side effects and tolerability-wise on the combination? A little bit of rash, but tolerated well. Not many problems at all. In March 2007, earlier this year, she progressed in the liver with a 4.7-centimeter metastasis, and she was then placed on Zolota and Tykerb, even though it's the second time she already had lapatinib. And she's continuing on this, and the liver lesion has shrunk most recently to 1.7 centimeters from 4.7 centimeters, and she's tolerating therapy very well. What's her quality of life been since she's had metastatic disease? It's been, what, a couple years? She's had metastatic disease now for several, probably four years. Overall, very good. I mean, she's happiest now because she's on absolutely all oral therapy. She's a school teacher, and she's continued to work and still functions active in the American Cancer Society, Relay for Lives, and things like that. Now, what hormonal therapy has she had other than the She's tamoxifen? not, as I reviewed the case, I realized she's never been treated with an aromatase inhibitor. So the only hormone therapy she had is tamoxifen. So, Eric, can you comment on this case and also the issue of the long-term history of HER2-positive disease and whether it's different if the patient's ER-positive or ER-negative? Sure. She's pretty clearly done reasonably well for a woman who had extensive liver metastases now diagnosed about four years ago. And I don't think this is 
terribly atypical for what we see now with HER2-positive disease. There are, of course, still patients with HER2-positive metastatic disease who have more rapid disease progression and, unfortunately, die of their disease in the course of a year or two or less. But there are others like this woman who seem to have responses to repeated regimens. I do think that it would make sense to try an endocrine manipulation at some point in time, and the next time she has disease progression would probably be a good time. The big question is going to be, are you going to do that with some HER2-directed therapy? And in a woman who's had previous trastuzumab and previous lapatinib, who knows what the value is of continuing that therapy, but I have to say, I probably would give that endocrine therapy probably with trastuzumab. So you go back to trastuzumab? I would probably do that when I used another endocrine therapy, but I can't point to any study in a woman like this that would support doing that. It's just I'm impressed by the fact that she's done so well over time with continued anti-HER2 therapy that I'd be hard-pressed to stop it. If you were going to give her hormone therapy, what would it be? I would probably give her an aromatase inhibitor. What do we know about fulvestrin? We've heard sort of whiffs about maybe it's more effective in HER2 positive in the lab, or I'm not sure we've seen clinical data. Yeah, I don't think that we've seen clinical data there. And I wouldn't object if you wanted to give her fulvestrin instead of an AI. I wouldn't object if you wanted to give her one and then the other. One of the interesting things about HER2 positive disease is that there does seem to be this smoldering HER2-positive disease that develops over time so that patients present initially often with what feels like an explosive recurrence, lots of visceral disease, frequently abnormal liver function tests, symptomatic. And then when there's progression over time, it sometimes just isn't like that again. So you may well have the opportunity to try a couple of hormones at some point in the future. And of course, the other potential options that you'll have to consider are newer therapies. And this is an area where there are a wide variety of clinical trials that are either open or opening at a number of centers looking at drugs that may target some of the resistance mechanisms that people believe may be important. What about pertuzumab, Lisa? What is it and where is it heading? Pertuzumab is a novel HER2-targeted agent that targets at a slightly different area than trastuzumab. And there's been some recent data that suggests that it may, particularly in combination with trastuzumab, may provide additional HER2 targeting and efficacy. It's very early and is the subject of active investigations. It's not something, obviously, that's either available for that I would give off protocol. Any suggestion that it would work in a patient like this who, at least at one point, was resistant to trastuzumab? Yes. In truth, many of these novel HER2-targeted agents are predicated on the idea that you can circumvent resistance mechanisms that trastuzumab may or may not alone work on. So yes, and that's why they're adding it in in these clinical trials. What about the issue of the hormone therapy, Lisa, in this situation? This is what I call the tandem situation. We Mm -hmm. had the tandem trial came out about a year ago, first-line metastatic disease, and astrozole alone with trastuzumab. Can you talk about what your take was on those data and how it affected the way you approach these patients with metastatic disease, Lisa? Those are sort of two separate issues. In the tandem study, one of the things that struck me was not only that adding trastuzumab to an aromatase inhibitor improved outcome, which it clearly did, but I was also struck by how poorly the patients did on the aromatase inhibitor alone with a time to progression of only about three months. How it's reflected in my practice is that I am probably more likely to include trastuzumab with aromatase inhibitors than I might have otherwise. 
That said, there are so many different ways of approaching the HER2-positive, hormone receptor-positive patient, and many of my patients do quite well, even in that setting, on a single agent and an oral agent. So I will try aromatase inhibitors alone in the what one might call the triple-positive <coughs> circumstance, particularly in patients that would like to remain on a single oral agent and not commit them to infusional therapy from the very beginning. This circumstance is, I'm going to echo something that Eric just mentioned, you do see patients who come with disease that frightens us from the very beginning. It's visceral or it's explosive. You know, I've had patients where lungs, liver, bones, everything from the get-go who do quite well on a minimalist approach to therapy. Now, this particular patient has not done well on single-agent trastuzumab and has proven actually several times in a row, that she will ultimately progress on that alone. It may be slowing down the pace of her disease, but it isn't stopping it. But she may do well with an aromatase inhibitor or fulvestrin or dual targeting of the hormone receptor and HER2. She may do well with a easy-to-take chemotherapy HER2-targeted agent. So if the combination capecitabine-lapatinib stops working, I also would go back to a trastuzumab-based regimen and maybe add just single-agent taxane or venerelbine, which as I recall in the laundry list, she hasn't had that yet either. And she may do quite well. She may actually be one of those people for whom chemo alone is quite effective. I think there's so many choices still in her. And one other choice just to keep in mind, I wouldn't use this drug now because it has the potential to eliminate other options, but she had a very nice response to an anthracycline-based therapy initially. Not a pathologic complete response, but from what you describe, a dramatic shrinkage. And At some point in time when you're really out of options, returning to an anthracycline would not be unreasonable at all. The concern is that it might harm her cardiac function, which might eliminate other options, which is why I wouldn't do it now. I assume you would use Doxel in that situation? I'd certainly consider using Doxel. What do we know about lapatinib in the heart? I still think we don't know quite as much as we'd like to know about lapatinib in the heart. Most of the patients who have been treated with lapatinib have been previously treated with Herceptin, although not all and they've passed what many would call a Herceptin stress test because in order to go in those lapatinib trials, they actually had to have a normal ejection fraction. That said, there's, I think, some suggestion that lapatinib may cause less cardiac toxicity than Herceptin, but I think the jury is still out, and I would be very cautious in using lapatinib in somebody who started off with less than normal cardiac function. I'm not saying that I would never do it, but I would certainly watch that patient very, very closely. Bill, I'm curious what your experience has been with lapatinib in the clinical setting. I've used it some on clinical trials, but I've found it to be a fairly well-tolerated agent. Some nail toxicity I've seen in some patients. The skin rash doesn't seem to be anywhere near as bad as Tarceva. What about the combination of capecitabine and lapatinib? I'm assuming that's the way you've been using it off-study? or Yes, I've had a few patients, and it seems to be pretty well-tolerated. Getting back to this issue of hormone therapy and the HER2-positive tumor, Eric, what's your take about what's going on in terms of why it seems like it's not working as well? Could this be a quantitative ER thing? Mark Pegram has shown that the ER is lower in HER2-positive patients. If you have a HER2-positive patient who has a high ER, is that going to make a difference? In general, it is known that ER levels tend to be lower in patients with HER2-positive disease than HER2-negative disease. PR is more frequently negative in patients with HER2-positive than in HER2-negative disease. It is interesting that the results from tandem weren't better than they were. So some would have argued that what's going on with endocrine therapy and HER2-positive disease 
is that HER2 signaling is interfering with what one would expect in terms of a response from endocrine therapy, and that by turning off that HER2 signaling, you could allow endocrine therapy to work better. And the results from the combination arm in tandem were far from overwhelming. The Ken Osborne theory? I mean, Ken Osborne has been a big proponent of using anti-HER2 therapy in these, for that reason. Kent has been, and there may well be quite a bit to that, but practically at the moment, I think we're faced with the fact that at least in the tandem study, maybe it was a single, but it certainly wasn't a home run combining trastuzumab with an astrazole. And Lisa, do you think this has implications for adjuvant therapy? You know, we take the Rabdin numbers and we look at the patient's risk of relapse, starting to look at node negative HER2 positive tumors, very controversial area, and we're going to expect, you know, a 40-50% drop in relapse rate with hormone therapy, you know, just sort of applying the formula. Maybe that's not actually the case. Yeah, no, I think that's actually quite true. I think many people, although not everyone, believe that HER2 positivity is a marker of at least relative endocrine resistance, which is not to say that it helps you choose which endocrine agent to use, but it may mean that these patients may in fact benefit from a dual strategy in the adjuvant setting as well as the metastatic. How are you approaching the patients with HER2 positive node negative tumors? A lot of controversy, particularly under one centimeter. What's your take on what the risk of relapse is? And how do you approach this clinically? I personally believe that HER2 independently confers a poorer prognosis. My habit is to sort of jigger the adjuvant online results and give it a relative risk of about 1.5 if they're also HER2 positive, which is based on some data, although in truth it's not entirely clear how much of additional poor prognosis outside of grade and some of the other things that are already measured HER2 positivity alone would give you. Because of that, you tend to get in these positive, positive, positive patients a higher risk for stage than you do otherwise, which I think also means that you can adopt HER2-targeted therapies with some reasonable assurance that they will get some benefit out of it. The forest plots in the large adjuvant trials suggested that trastuzumab does have a benefit across the board. Now, I think the how low would you go question is the one that comes up the most. You know, I think in the high-risk node negative, there's a general acceptance of trastuzumab, and there's data to support it. In the stage one tumor, there's considerably less. And my own habit is to have a conversation with the patient at that setting about the lack of data. I do use trastuzumab in stage one breast cancers, not all of them, not the very small. How small? I don't think I've ever given trastuzumab to a T1A. I have given it to T1B tumors in the appropriate patient setting. I have to say, I also typically combine it with chemotherapy. So I think the other question that has not been addressed, and which I would, Eric knows this because he and I have this conversation uh, a couple of times a year, can we have trastuzumab and endocrine agents and skip the chemotherapy. You know, I would be very supportive of a clinical trial where we saw whether or not we are getting the lion's share of the benefit from the targeted agents and not give chemotherapy. That is not my practice. I have done it in patients who are at higher risk and in whom I couldn't give chemo. But right now, I typically add both the chemo and the trastuzumab as a marriage when I add adjuvant therapy. Eric, trastuzumab without chemo, question A. Question B, how low do you go? Yeah, so I would actually feel more optimistic about a trial of trastuzumab and endocrine therapy if the results from Tandem had been better, but I still think it's a relevant question. But again, I'm struck that Tandem didn't yield a more promising result than it did. 
As many people know, I'm not someone who draws clean lines in the sand. But for this particular question in terms of how low will you go, I actually will try to draw a line in the sand. And I won't use trastuzumab for somebody who's got a T1A tumor, with the exception that if you talk about somebody who's got 20 different foci of T1A disease, I think that's potentially a different patient. I've used trastuzumab for T1B tumors, particularly in the ER negative setting. Patient who's got ER positive disease, in spite of my comments about the fact that hormonal therapy is less effective in HER2 positive disease, I think long and hard before I treat somebody with an ER positive T1B tumor with trastuzumab and chemotherapy, and I don't give it trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting without chemotherapy. Lisa, what about this fascinating idea of lapatinib plus trastuzumab? It's going to be looked at in the ALTO adjuvant trial. What do we know about it clinically and biologically? Well, so the preclinical data would suggest that the combination is actually going to be more effective than either alone. They obviously have very different mechanisms. Lapatinib is a small molecule. It is not going to be as affected by some of the proposed mechanisms of resistance that affect trastuzumab. On the other hand, it will also not augment an immune response, which is one of the proposed mechanisms for trastuzumab efficacy through ADCC. If you add the two together, you may again get that one-two punch against HER2. The ALTO trial, of course, combines it with chemotherapy, so it's with and thereafter. And I think it's a trial that I think in general is a thoughtful one and answers a directly relevant question right now. And very importantly, Lisa is actually leading a trial in the CALGB and in the North American Intergroup that will ask this question in the preoperative setting where patients will be randomized to paclitaxel trastuzumab, paclitaxel lapatinib, or paclitaxel trastuzumab plus lapatinib. That's the only preoperative therapy before surgery, and it actually should give a very clean answer to the question as to whether the combination of lapatinib and trastuzumab with paclitaxel is better than either alone, at least in terms of breast response. So aside from the obviously crucial question about the clinical response, what are some of the tissue correlates that you're most interested in looking at? Yeah, so one of the nice things about these trials, and I think the preoperative or neoadjuvant setting is the thing that it gives us is early markers of efficacy, but the game is in disease-free survival. However, it also lets us get the tissues to try and identify what are the relevant markers of resistance and sensitivity. So in this particular trial, we actually have mandated upfront research biopsies. And what are going to be looked at are gene expression array predictors of responsiveness and resistance, immunohistochemical ones with some of the classic markers, such as the PI3 kinase pathway members, the various HER family members. And I think also relevant, you know, we talk about these trials as being separate from one another, which is true in the performance of the trial, but certainly the Europeans are running a similar, there's a neoadjuvant portion, neo-alto in Europe, and we will be sharing tissues so that we can validate across each other's trials to see whether what looks like it's relevant in the CLGB and breast intergroup study holds out in an independent data set. So hopefully this will give us a lot of information in a short period of time. Pat? Well, I have two questions, one of which may be addressed later in this conference, but regarding Dr. Harwin's patient, no one mentioned bevacizumab in the sequence, and I was just wondering at what point would you consider that, either as an additive 
to her current therapy or at the time of progression. And my second question regarding both of the last two cases of locally advanced breast cancer in very young women, we haven't asked about BRCA testing and whether those were done in those women and whether that would affect, particularly if they were positive, subsequent ovariectomy and then consequent decisions regarding hormonal interventions. Lisa? Well, those are all terrific questions. I actually had the ovarectomy question with the 42-year-old woman, I think was something I'm sure was addressed, the BRCA testing. Has she been tested? She was. She was negative. She was negative, yeah. Yeah, and I think in a young woman, it is appropriate for someone who's under the age of 35, I think generally meets the threshold for genetic testing. Her phenotype with being hormone receptor positive would argue against at least BRCA1, But, you know, as we all know, even BRCA1, 20% of BRCA1 mutation carriers get hormone receptor positive breast cancer. So I think that it's a suggestion of a direction in terms of phenotype, but it doesn't help you enormously in genetic testing. In terms of the bevacizumab question, boy, there's no right answer there either. I was going to suggest that if your patient didn't have the gist, (laughs) I was going to ask about a (laughs) weekly baclodaxel bev thing, but the gist put the end to that. In this setting, so the most compelling data that we have in terms of relevant endpoints, of course, is ECOG 2100, where it was first-line weekly paclitaxel with or without bevacizumab with a really quite compelling improvement in time to progression. However, HER2-positive disease was de facto excluded from that study because of its first-line nature. So we really, there were very few HER2-positive patients included in there. This patient is heavily pretreated, and the capecitabine bevacizumab study, which did include some, did not meet a time-to-progression endpoint. And I tend to use that combination only if I really am looking for a response with capecitabine. What do we know about trastuzumab and bevacizumab? There have been some data that Mark Pegram's been presenting. There's certainly a very clear rationale for the combination that's only been studied to a limited extent in a small study with some concerning safety signals from a cardiotoxicity standpoint. So I think on trial, worthwhile question, but I certainly wouldn't do it off a study. Eric, what about this issue of bevacizumab and trastuzumab? A, is it ever a consideration off study? And what about the BETH trial that's going to look at, I guess, TCH plus or minus BEV by the NSABP and CIRG? Right. In this patient, I probably wouldn't go there in terms of bevacizumab. And as Lisa said, she's been heavily pretreated in the one randomized trial where patients were heavily pretreated, which was the capecitabine trial. There was not a clear benefit with the addition of bevacizumab. There is a rationale in patients with HER2-positive disease, but given all of the other issues here, that's not enough for me. And I wouldn't combine them outside of a study because of the fact that we still know relatively little. And I would agree with Lisa. I think that there's at least a signal that there may be some cardiac toxicity that we have to pay attention to. That said, I believe that this trial that will be done in the adjuvant setting is a good trial. And this is a trial for patients with HER2-positive disease who will be randomized to TCH or TCH plus bevacizumab. It specifically uses a non-anthracycline-based regimen to try to avoid the problems with cardiotoxicity. And I think it'll be the cleanest answer in the HER2-positive setting as to whether BEV adds. Now, there is a plan, more than a plan, there is a trial in the North American Intergroup that is slated to open in the next several months that is being run by ECOG 
in which bevacizumab will be added in the metastatic setting as well to therapy for patients in the first-line setting with HER2-positive breast cancer. What's the actual design? So that study is a taxane or a taxane plus platinum regimen with trastuzumab, and then patients are randomized to receive either Bev or not. If I remember right, it's up to the physician, the treating physician, whether or not she or he uses a taxane or a taxane plus carbo. This is trastuzumab naive first line? Trastuzumab naive first line. I suspect patients who have had adjuvant trastuzumab are allowed in if they have more than a certain disease-free interval. That study, though, will probably be relatively slow to accrue because we've all found it pretty hard to do large studies in the HER2-positive first-line metastatic setting. And I could imagine that we may actually get information from the adjuvant trials maybe even sooner. Lisa, what about the issue of first-line therapy and metastatic disease where the patients had prior trastuzumab? maybe a year previously, maybe three years previously, although I don't know how many people we have right now. There should be a new generation of these people coming along. How are you going to think about particularly what kind of anti-HER2 therapy to use? There isn't a right answer to this because we're operating in a sort of data-free zone. But I do think that the disease-free interval is going to be a key element here. Those patients that relapse very quickly after a year of trastuzumab, you might argue for a different HER2-targeted approach for example, the lapatinib capecitabine. Those patients who are a couple of years out, I think I would probably go back to trastuzumab as my first line or a trastuzumab-based regimen. Paul? In those patients where there's been a change in at least perceived menopausal status, to what degree are FSH and estradiol levels affected by tamoxifen therapy? And if it is, when after cessation of tamoxifen, can you retest to get an accurate picture? Eric? Well, so we know that estradiol levels are hugely affected by tamoxifen therapy, and in premenopausal women, estradiol levels typically go up. FSH levels, I believe, can be affected as well. They go down. Yeah. So not terribly useful there. You need to be off tamoxifen for a few months. This is why, again, I'll come back and say this that I think that you have a woman who is premenopausal at presentation with ER-positive breast cancer, that tamoxifen for five years remains the standard. And remember as well that a premenopausal woman who acutely goes through menopause with treatment, so chemotherapy induces menopause, or for that matter, her ovaries magically disappear because some surgeon takes them out. That woman is different from the woman who's postmenopausal and diagnosed. She's gone through another endocrine therapy, and that endocrine therapy is an estrogen-depriving therapy. And so the situation in that woman may be different than the woman who presents already postmenopausal. So I appreciate this sense that you need to get in with the aromatase inhibitor because of all of the data. I remind everyone that we have yet to show really convincing survival benefits associated with these drugs. I think we all believe that there will be small survival benefits associated with the use of aromatase inhibitors versus not. Although whether the precise timing of when you use an aromatase inhibitor in the course of a woman's disease, whether that will really play out in terms of being important from a survival standpoint is unclear. I have to say I'm a little more comfortable with patients who've had a surgical ophorectomy, but I can say that, and I'm sure that as these anecdotes come in, you know, from other people, you'll hear even longer durations, but I can speak to a three-year duration of chemotherapy-induced amenorrhea that then reversed with return of ovarian function. So I'm very concerned about initiating an AI much before that. 
Any situations, i.e. patient in their 30s, a few kids, grabs you by the lapels, five positive nodes, HER2 positive, not eligible for the soft or text trials, or doesn't want to be in them, would you consider, for example, laparoscopic oophorectomy in an AI or an LHRH agonist in an AI? You know, the patient hanging onto your lapels is always a compelling argument. I think I'm very supportive of the soft and other trials looking at the benefit of ovarian suppression in what I would consider to be the modern setting. In truth, ovarian ablation or suppression has a very clear role to play in adjuvant therapy, but what is not clear is what role it plays in today's setting, where the patient's getting tamoxifen and they're getting chemotherapy. So have I had patients undergo ovarectomy, either medical or surgical, as an adjuvant thing? Yes, in the high-risk patient, particularly after a long discussion about the absence of data and with the other therapies added. I have also given it to patients who either cannot or will not take chemotherapy, and I add ovarian suppression or ablation to their tamoxifen. Eric, same question. So just remember that the text and soft trials have ovarian suppression plus an AI as an experimental arm, and we hope that that arm may turn out to be better. At a minimum, I think that we have a sense that it's probably a more toxic arm. But the fact is, we don't know that that's going to be better than, for example, ovarian suppression and tamoxifen. And I'll tell you, not too many people seem to be as concerned about this as I am, but (laughs) ovarian suppression and an AI both work essentially through the same mechanism. They deprive a woman of estrogen and a tumor of estrogen, more specifically. Ovarian suppression and tamoxifen work through different mechanisms. And I think one of the possible outcomes of soft and tax is that ovarian suppression and tamoxifen will be a better therapy. We just don't know. So outside of a trial, I actually do use ovarian suppression, but I use ovarian suppression with tamoxifen. And it would be the very unusual patient where I would do ovarian suppression and an AI outside of a trial. It actually was included in the St. Gallen consensus statement as a possible option with asterisks and special circumstances, such as the woman who has a history of DVT.